0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz. Uh, This is going to be questions 11 through 15 in the rheumatology section of Internal Medicine Essentials. But before I begin that, I'm going to give you a special question, which comes from the neurology section of Internal Medicine Essentials. And the reasons for this will become clear in just a few moments. This is question number 23 on page 235 of Neurology Internal Medicine Essentials. A 27-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department. Four hours ago, she awoke with drooping of the left face, inability to close the left eye, mild numbness and tingling of the left cheek, dizziness, nausea, a mild headache, a dry mouth, and increased sensitivity to noise. Two weeks ago, she had a flu-like illness with rhinorrhea, a sore throat, and a cough that resolves spontaneously. She has a history of uncomplicated migraine, for which she takes acetaminophen as needed. On physical exam, vital signs are normal. No lesions of the skin or mucous membranes are noted. Neurologic examination reveals severe weakness of the left upper and lower facial muscles and an inability to close the left eye completely. Sensor examination shows that facial sensation is normal bilaterally. The remainder of the neurologic examination is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? A. Acyclovir. B, intravenous methylprednisolone, C, prednisone, or D, sumatriptan. I'll give you a moment to contemplate those answers. Again, A, acyclovir, B, intravenous methylprednisolone, C, prednisone, or D, sumatriptan. The answer, uh, correct answer for this one is uh, answer C, which is prednisone. This patient has the acute onset of Bell palsy and should receive prednisone so, mounting evidence implicates an inflammatory and maybe infectious cause of Bell palsy that is most likely due to human herpes virus, one infection of the facial nerve. I will tell you, after extensive literature search for my own Bell's palsy, which developed over the Christmas holidays, on Christmas Day to be exact, <clears throat> the evidence for whether the herpes virus causes this or not is controversial. However, it is our best explanation for idiopathic Bell's palsy at this time. <clears throat> uh, cranial uh, nerve 7 innervates all muscles of the facial expression, and therefore any cause of complete facial neuropathy will impair the hemi, uh, entire face, including the forehead corrugator muscles that are typically spared by cerebral lesions. So one of the key tips I teach the medical students is that when you're evaluating someone with a possible Bell's palsy, uh, they should not be able to wrinkle their forehead or they should be, have lost wrinkling of the forehead. And that indicates uh, loss of function in the upper um, face as well. In a stroke, you will see preservation of the corrugator muscles because of contralateral innervation of those upper motor, um, uh, uh, the up, upper portions of the motor function of the face. Uh, patients with Bell's palsy may also report dry mouth, hyperacusis, impaired taste, otherwise known as dysgeusia), and pain and numbness near the ear. And I will tell you that my Bell's palsy was preceded by approximately 24 hours of severe post auricular pain on the left. Uh, and this to the point where it kept me awake at night. Uh, the neurologists weren't quite sure what this was, but when I did an extensive search, it turns out that. Somewhere between 17 and 50 percent of patients will develop the symptom either just before they develop the bells, uh, up to 10 days in advance, uh, or after the uh, actual um, motor neuron findings develop. Um, The abrupt onset of symptoms builds over one to two days, usually, and again, these. Typical preceding symptoms can be this di- weird dyskusia, which happened to me. I couldn't taste our turkey dinner on Christmas Day, and I couldn't figure out why. Uh, that, at the same time, I was having this posterior pain. Uh, and then other things, such as hyperacusis, uh, can also occur. I did not have that symptom. Earfulness is another symptom that may occur before the bells uh, occurs in onset. Uh, bells palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion. And you must think of other possible causes of Bell's palsy, and these include such important diagnoses as Lyme disease, uh, HIV infection, acute and chronic otitis media, cholesteatoma, and multiple sclerosis. Um, Generally speaking, if you have these other things, there's going to be a history consistent with them, such as HIV risk infections. Uh, travel to endemic areas uh, or reports of tick bites for Lyme disease, complaints of ear pain that occur with chronic otitis media, uh, and other neurologic findings in the past, which would go with multiple sclerosis. The most appropriate treatment of Bell's palsy is currently considered prednisone. I was given 60 milligrams per day for seven days. Uh, the text here recommends 40 milligrams per day. I don't think there's a big difference between those two dosages. It's a pretty whopping dose either way. And it should be administered within the first 72 hours of onset of symptoms. Mine was begun uh, within eight hours, as I reported to an emergency room for further evaluation. So uh, I did receive uh, antiviral therapy with this. Uh, uh, there are some literature that supports using both antiviral therapy uh, as well as uh, steroids together. Uh, there's very little support of just giving antiviral therapy alone, although there have been multiple um, studies of this. It's not clear uh, that it works at all. So um, monotherapy for Bell's palsy has not been shown to be effective, and so you shouldn't have chosen that as an answer. High-dose intravenous glucocorticoids, such as methylprednisolone, is usually used in acute treatment of exacerbations of multiple multiple sclerosis, but are not indicated in the treatment of Bell's palsy. Uh, And this patient is most likely simply has a Bell palsy, so you would not give him, uh, uh, as I did not receive, intravenous methylprednisolone. And finally, an interesting thing about the uh, sumatriptan choice, obviously they're trying to get at whether this could be a migraine equivalent. Um, Keep in mind that when you have a uh, facial palsy due to a migraine, it acts more like a higher cortical lesion. So it's going to just affect the uh, lower motor neuron cranial nerve seven in terms of its weakness deficits. It would not affect the forehead. Uh, In this particular case described in the question, the patient has both upper and lower facial muscles affected, which is... uh, uh, Sorry, I, I misstated that last part. Actually, the, in the uh, migraine equivalent, it's going to be a lower motor neuron cranial nerve 7 weakness. So in other words, it won't affect the forehead. Uh, whereas in a Bell's palsy, both the upper and lower facial muscles are affected, which is a lower motor neuron cranial nerve 7 weakness. Hopefully that was clear. Uh, but in other words, a migraine equivalent looks more like a stroke and a Bell's palsy looks more like a Bell's palsy. So the key point in this question was that the most appropriate treatment of Bell's palsy is prednisone, preferably administered within 72 hours of development. The other thing I will add in this situation is that most patients, including myself, are unable to close the eye of the affected side of the Bell's palsy. So you're gonna need to make sure you supply them with material to patch the eye at night, as well as artificial tears, to uh, instill into the eye every one hour while they're awake uh, in order to prevent them from getting corneal abrasions or ultimately developing severe keratitis from dryness of that eye chronically. The other thing to know, uh, because you may get asked this question on the boards uh, or on the shelf exam, is that uh, the prognosis is pretty good with about two-thirds of patients regaining full recovery within three weeks of onset of symptoms There's about a quarter or a third of patients um, who will continue to have deficits, most of which resolve within six months. And then there are famous patients such as Katie Holmes and George Clooney and others who have residual, and Sylvester Stallone, actually, who have residual deficits, which have lasted permanently and for years. It is thought to be the reason that Katie Holmes has sort of this nice um, smirk, uh, which is fairly famous, uh, and it is thought to be a residual of a Bell's palsy she had when she was younger. So it's an overall pretty good prognosis. But think of other diagnoses, such as Lyme disease, HIV infection, and and the other things that I mentioned above. So moving on to rheumatology, uh, we're going to move to question 11. um, And uh, question 11 reads, A 52-year-old man is evaluated for a five-year history of gradually progressive left knee pain. The patient has 20 minutes of morning stiffness that recurs after prolonged inactivity. He has minimal to no pain at rest and no clicking or locking of the knee. Over the past several months, the pain has limited ambulation so that he can only walk a few blocks. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Body mass index is 25. The left knee has a small effusion without erythema or warmth. Range of motion of the knee elicits crepitus. There is medial joint line tenders to palpation, bony hypertrophy, and a moderate varus deformity. There is no evidence of joint instability on stress testing. Radiographs of the knee reveal bone-on-bone joint space loss and numerous osteophytes. Which of the following diagnostic studies should be done next? A. Computed tomography of the knee. B, Diagnostic Joint Aspiration, C, Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Knee, or D, No Additional Diagnostic Testing. Again, those answers are A, Computed Tomography of the Knee, B, Diagnostic Joint Aspiration, C, Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Knee, or D, No Additional Diagnostic Imaging or Testing. So the answer here, uh, hopefully you got this one correct, is that um, Uh, D, no additional diagnostic testing is indicated. Uh, This patient uh, has a clinical diagnosis of uh, osteoarthritis. According to the American College of Rheumatology's clinical criteria, knee osteoarthritis can be diagnosed if knee pain is accompanied by at least three of the following features. Age greater than 50 years, which this patient is 52 years old. Stiffness lasting less than 30 minutes, which his does. Crepitus, which he does have on physical exam, some bone, bone tenderness, which he has, bone enlargement, which he has, and no palpable warmth. Um, and he has no palpable warmth on exam. These criteria are 95% sensitive and 69% specific for diagnosis. So additional diagnostic testing would not be appropriate because there is no impact on the management of advanced disease in the situation. As you are probably aware. Uh, Computed tomography of the knee is very sensitive for detecting pathologic findings such as an occult fracture, osteomyelitis, as well as bone erosions, but none of these things are suspected in this patient. He has no history of trauma. He has no history of fever to indicate he has osteomyelitis and so forth. Uh, Small to moderate-sized diffusions can occur in patients with osteoarthritis, and the fluid is typically non-inflammatory. So remember from our prior question in this section this patient would probably have less than five or 6,000 white cells in that uh, fluid if it was aspirated, probably more like down around 2,000. Uh, and the only time you're really going to aspirate these patients that you suspect have osteoarthritis is as you, uh, just before, you're going to inject them uh, with glucocorticoids if you're doing glucocorticoid injection. So a joint aspiration would not be indicated. Uh, Magnetic resonance imaging is an interesting consideration in this patient, uh, and that's really used to evaluate soft tissue structures in the knee, such as meniscal tears. It's worth being aware of that patients with meniscal tears may report a clicking or locking of the knee secondary to loose cartilage, but often have pain only on walking, particularly going up or down stairs. Um, so, you know, if you do MRIs on patients with degenerative arthritis, you're probably going to see meniscal tears. Um, they're part of the degenerative process, but they don't impact management. Arthroscopic knee surgery for patients with osteoarthritis really does not provide any clinical benefit. Um, the one exception could be in patients with meniscal tears from uh, degenerative arthritis that result in free flap or loose body producing painful locking of the knee, which again, this patient does not have. Uh, So since these findings were not present in this patient, you would not order an MRI on him. You would stop there and you would treat him as osteoarthritis. So the key point in this question is that osteoarthritis is diagnosed clinically and does not require advanced imaging studies to establish the diagnosis. So moving on to question 12, and again, I apologize for my strange voice, but that is partly because, well, it is completely because I have a paralyzed seventh uh, cranial nerve, uh, which is making it very strange and odd to talk, but you should see me when I try and sip a glass of water and it dribbles down my chin. Uh, Item 12, a 76-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-month history of moderate left knee pain that worsens with ambulation. She reports minimal pain at rest and no nocturnal pain. There are no clicking or locking symptoms. She has tried naproxen and ibuprofen, but developed dyspepsia. Acetaminophen provides mild to moderate pain relief. Medical history is significant for hypertension. Medications are lisinopril and, as needed, acetaminophen. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Body mass index is 32. Range of motion of the left knee elicits crepitus. There's a small effusion without erythema or warmth. Tenderness to palpation is present along the medial joint line. Testing for meniscal or ligamentous injury is negative. Radiographs of the knee reveal medial tibiofemoral compartment joint space narrowing and sclerosis. Small medial osteophytes are present. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Celecoxib celico- B. Glucosamine sulfate C. Magnetic resonance imaging of the knee or D, weight loss, and exercise. Again, choices are celecoxib, B, glucosamine, sulfate, C, MRI of the knee, or D, weight loss, and exercise. So I'm hoping that you got this answer correct as well. Uh, the answer is D. It's weight loss and exercise are indicated for this patient with knee osteoarthritis. Uh, her knee pain is worse with weight-bearing and is very suggestive of tibiofemoral osteoarthritis, uh, which is a diagnosis supported by the presence of medial joint line tenderness and as well as radiographic findings of medial tibiofemoral compartment joint space narrowing. The strongest risk factors you should know for osteoarthritis are advancing age, obesity, female sex, joint injury either caused by occupation or repetitive use, like a football player, and genetic factors. Obesity is the most important modifiable risk factor for knee osteoarthritis, and several trials have demonstrated that weight loss uh, or exercise programs can provide relief of pain and improve function at least comparable to the benefits of NSAIDs. In long-term studies, sustained weight loss of approximately 6.8 kilograms, which is about 15 pounds, has resulted in symptomatic relief. So really that would be the best thing to do with this woman. And the sort of neurocalisthenic key point in there as you're reading this question is that she is obese uh, with a body mass index of 32. So when you see that, be thinking about modifying uh, her risk factors for the disease that she has rather than throwing drugs at her. The next choice, uh, celecoxib, or choice A, uh, cyclo. Cyclooxygenase 2-specific inhibitor has a lower risk of causing gastrointestinal ulcers than uh, NSAIDs, but can still cause dyspepsia, which occurred in this patient after taking naproxen and ibuprofen. COX-2 inhibitors are not more effective than uh, NSAIDs and are significantly more expensive. And the other thing to know is that they are associated with an increased risk for adverse cardiovascular events, which is why they've really fallen out of favor quite a bit. So you would not be wanting to use celecoxib in this woman. Uh, so the next choice, glucosamine sulfate, is commonly used in the management of osteoarthritis, but multiple studies have failed to document its effectiveness in reversing pain or affecting the course of the disease. So this would not be a good choice. And magnetic resonance imaging we talked about in the last question. It's indicated to evaluate possible meniscal or other ligamentous injuries. None of which is suggested by this patient's history, i.e. she has no knee locking or giving way. Uh, And her examination findings are negative for tendinous or ligamentous injury. So you would not go down the MRI route, although it's always easy to push that button on your computer. You'd be wasting a few thousand dollars if you obtain that study in this patient. So a key point in this question is that obesity is the most important modifiable risk factor for knee osteoarthritis and weight loss and exercise are recommended to reduce pain and improve function. Question number 13. A 38-year-old man is evaluated during a follow-up examination. An abnormal serum uric acid level of 7.9 milligrams per deciliter was obtained at a health screening performed at his place of employment. All other measures from the comprehensive metabolic profile were normal. He drinks two alcoholic beverages each weekend and eats meat several times weekly. Medical history is otherwise unremarkable, and he takes no medications. Family history is notable for his father, who has gout. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Body mass index is 24. The remainder of the examination is normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment at this time? A. Allopurinol, B. Colchicine, C. Hydrochlorothiazide, D. Probenicid, or E. No treatment is required. Again, those choices are A, allopurinol, B, colchicine, C, hydrochlorothiazide, D, probenicid, or E, no treatment is required. And I hope that you got this one right as well. Um, so no treatment is required for this patient, so the answer is E. He has asymptomatic hyperuricemia, and I will tell you that it's an interesting Little uh, issue with this question, if you go to the back of the Internal Medicine Essentials book, they uh, have the normal range of uric acid as being 2.5 to 8 milligrams per deciliter, uh, and yet they're calling 7.9 elevated. So I'd say it's at the upper range of normal, and in most populations, you'd consider this a slightly high uh, uric acid level, but the uh, book itself indicates that it's within the normal range. So, this uh, particular condition is characterized by moderately elevated serum uric acid level without evidence of symptoms of gout. Um, And so, patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia have an increased risk for gout over the long term, but a low likelihood of a gout attack in the short term. And so, a pharmacologic intervention at this time is not indicated. And, you know, there's some studies that suggest hyperuricemia is related to other comorbidities, such as hypertension, kidney disease, and cardiovascular disease. There's no consensus about treating these patients to lower their uric acid to decrease their risk for having these comorbidities. So, patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia, dietary and lifestyle considerations are always worth reviewing. And you're probably aware of what these are, but they would be decreasing consumption of high purine foods, which include. Meat and seafood, as well as uh, decreasing alcohol intake and high fructose foods. Um, uh, you also can have them increase their dairy consumption, as well as lose weight, and this will help lower serum uric acid concentrations. Uh, so, regarding the other wrong answers, uh, allopurinol is an effective urate-lowering agent used to treat symptomatic hyperuricemia. underlying symptomatic. Uh, colchicine is an anti-inflammatory agent that can be, can be used to prevent uh, gout attacks. Um, probenicid is a uric drug that is used, to, again, to treat symptomatic hyperuricemia, not asymptomatic hyperuricemia. Um, so you would not use any of these drugs in this patient because he is asymptomatic. And then finally, regarding uh, hydrochlorothiazide, which was choice C, uh, that can be used to treat hypotension, which this patient does not have, um, and it promotes increases in serum uric acid concentration by inhibiting kidney urate excretion. And this is a really good one to be aware of so you don't get tripped up on the shelf exam or on the boards on the ABIM exam because hydrochlorothiazide is not a drug someone with a history of gout should be on, and perhaps this patient with his mildly elevated uric acid level, Hydrochlorothiazide might not be a great choice, even though it's a good antihypertensive drug to treat patients with hypertension. So, a key point here is treatment is not indicated for patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia. Moving on to question 14, if, can, if my face will hold out here in terms of reading these questions and answers to you. A 59 year old man is evaluated for a 10 year history of gout. He is currently asymptomatic, but has had four to five attacks per year over the past three years. The patient's only medication is ibuprofen as needed for gout attacks. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The general physical examination is normal. The joint, ex- joint examination is unremarkable, and no tophi to- are seen. Results of laboratory studies, including complete blood count, metabolic profile, and liver chemistry tests are normal. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate is 16. I'm not sure why they got that. And the serum uric acid level is 9.2 milligrams per deciliter. Radiographs of the hands and feet are normal. And again, just to uh, orient you, a serum uric acid level is of 9.2 is uh, elevated. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment to prevent further gout flares in this patient? A, allopurinol, B, colchicine, C, colchicine, and allopurinol, or D, for buxistat. Again, those answers are A, allopurinol, B, colchicine, C, colchicine and allopurinol, or D, phobloxastat. So uh, this patient should be started on allopurinol and colchicine. So choice C was the correct answer. He has frequent symptomatic gout attacks, namely more than two per year. This guy has four or five attacks a year. And so treatment with urate-lowering therapy, such as allopurinol, is definitely indicated um, for acute gout attacks, nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, glucocorticoids, and colchicine are appropriate management strategies. Um, and you have to sort of choose the treatment based on the relative efficacy in each patient as it works for them uh, and kind of consider the side effect profiles and risks for that patient. So in this situation, you're wondering, well, I yeah, get why you'd start him on allopurinol because his uric acid is elevated and he has more than two uh, uh, gout attacks per year. But why would you also start him on colchicine? Um, So uh, basically, um, what uh, can happen is that when you initially start the allopurinol in that first three to six months, uh, he's at risk for an acute gout attack. Uh, And so accordingly, you need to start prophylaxis with an anti-inflammatory agent, such as colchicine, at least during that period uh, that's concurrent with the ur- urate-lowering therapy initiation. So possible that you could stop the colchicine at a later date, but you would want to start him on a colchicine to prevent him from having an acute gout attack due to the fact that you're starting him on allopurinol. It's not completely clear why patients get acute gout attacks due to urate-lowering therapy, but it's probably from sudden shifts in uh, uric acid concentration in the blood. And so... Uh, you'd want to give prophylaxis. Um, you could also... Um, uh, the other choices were uh, uh, allopurinol alone, which, again, you would not do because uh, you would want to give them something to prophylax against a gut attack. Uh, you'd probably not do colchicine alone because then you're not treating the underlying problem of this elevated uh, uric acid level, this right choice was colchicine and alopyrinol, choice C. And then you're wondering why not Um And you could use that for uh, prophylaxis uh, as the dose of both flaboxistat and alopyrinol uh, could be adjusted to achieve a serum uric acid level less than 6, your target, by the way. Um, But the relative effectiveness of these two agents is not well-established. Febuxostat is more potent on a per mole basis, but is also more expensive than allopurinol, And also, it didn't have a choice for Febuxostat plus colchicine in this uh, test question. So that's another reason why Febuxostat alone would be a bad choice. And so uh, the key point in this question is that colchicine or another anti-inflammatory agent is indicated concurrent with initiation of urate-lowering agents in patients with frequently occurring or recurring gout attacks. Question number 15, the last in this bundle, a 74-year-old woman is evaluated for a two-year history of progressive pain of the fingers and knees along with morning stiffness lasting 20 minutes. She has no other pertinent personal or family medical history. Her only medication is acetaminophen as needed for pain. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Musculoskeletal examination reveals tenderness, erythema, some soft tissue swelling, and bony hypertrophy of the second and third metacarpophalangeal joints bilaterally. Bony hypertrophy and fluctuance of the knees are noted bilaterally. Results of laboratory studies, including erythrocyte sedimentation rate, serum ferritin, and serum iron levels, and transferrin saturation are normal. Rheumatoid factor and anticyclic citrullinated peptide, CCP, antibody assay are negative. Radiographs of the hands reveal joint space narrowing, periarticularly of the second and third metacarpophalangeal joints, osteophytes, subchondral sclerosis and linear calcification of the cartilage. Radiographs of the knee show diffuse joint space narrowing with osteophytes and cartilaginous calcification. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease or CPPD disease. B. Hemochromatosis. C. Osteoarthritis or D. Rheumatoid arthritis. Again, those choices are C, C, sorry, C, P, P, D, B, hemochromatosis, C, osteoarthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis. And I really like this question because I was talking earlier in these uh, test questions about neurocalisthenics or keywords. And when you hear about cartilaginous calcification or linear calcification of the cartilage, there's a definitely a disease you're supposed to think about. And sometimes um, you will see these questions and that will pop up for you and it should set off little bells and whistles for you. So the answer here is A. And this patient has chronic calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease, sometimes referred to as calcium pyrophosphate arthropathy. CPPD deposition disease is a clinical diagnosis made by observing typical osteoarthritis features along with radiographic evidence of calcium definition, deposition in the cartilage, also known, by the way, as chondrocalcinosis, in locations atypical for osteoarthritis, such as the metacarpophalangeal joints. So in this particular question, the key sort of clues to the diagnosis were the chondrocalcinosis in both the knees as well as the hands, and the fact that the arthritis is occurring in the second and third metacarpal phalangeal joints and not like the first and second as they would in osteoarthritis. Um, So due to the CPPD, you get a chronic inflammatory condition leading to progressive joint destruction, the patient has a polyarthritis with radiographic findings that resemble osteoarthritis. Um, however, involvement includes the second and third metacarpal phalangeal joints, which are not typically involved in osteoarthritis. And again, this chondrocalcinosis also steers you away from osteoarthritis. Uh, you really don't get that in osteoarthritis. So this would be considered pathognomonic for the CPPD deposition disease. Uh, the other thing to be aware of is with CPPD deposition disease, patients can get acute gout-like attacks, which are termed pseudogout, and these are acute inflammatory arthritis which may be caused by calcium pyrophosphate crystals being deposited in the joints. So uh, that would be the answer in this question. Uh, why is B hemochromatosis incorrect? Well, they really give that to you uh, on a silver platter. Hemochromatosis is one of the things you're supposed to think about when you see chondrocalcinosis or this type of polyarthritis. But the thing is, uh, this patient has no evidence of iron overload as reported in the normal serum seroton- ferritin, iron, and transferrin saturation values that would be characteristic of hemochromatosis. So they're sort of telling you in the lab data that she doesn't have hemochromatosis. Uh, we talked about why osteoarthritis uh, is the incorrect answer, uh, again, because you have chondrocalcinosis and the involvement of the second and third metacarpophalangeal joints. And then finally, rheumatoid arthritis. Hopefully, you did not choose this. Uh, this patient's findings um, only involve the second and third metacarpophalangeal joints. They're not describing other joints being involved. She has limited morning stiffness. Again, 20 minutes or less in this particular question. Where you'd expect 30 minutes or more in someone with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, uh, the, the, and again, in the labs, the rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP assay uh, were both negative, and there were no marginal erosions or periarticular osteopenia characteristically seen on x-rays of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So hopefully you didn't pick that one. And if you did, you can do the questions over again for free. Key point, calcium pyrophosphate dihyde great deposition disease is characterized by osteoarthritis like arthritis in atypical joints such as the metacarpophalangeal joints along with the presence of chondrocalcinosis which is this cartilaginous calcification that you'll see in the knees and sometimes the hands as well and that ends this batch of questions I'll be back with um, item 16 through 20 not too long for now (laughs)